Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Today's episode is part of our special six-part Women Behaving Boldly series, where we explore groundbreaking, daring, and that chick bad albums by some of pop music's most influential women. Show number three is an encore airing of our very first episode, yo, our pilot episode that we released in October of 2017. It features future soul pioneer Joy talking about the undersung 19th 1974 funk classic They Say I'm Different by Betty Davis. If you've never heard of Betty Davis before, we're not talking about the actress. This is the singer, the funk artist from the early 70s, though I'm sure she also had incredible eyes. <laughs> Our Betty Davis got her start in the 1960s as an aspiring R&B artist and songwriter. But by the early 70s is really when she came into her own as this pioneering figure in funk music. Her musical and vocal ferocity and this, her unabashed expressions of black female sexuality made her a slightly scandalous figure at the time. But she's become incredibly influential for future generations of artists, especially other black women. They Say I'm Different was her second in in my opinion, best album, one in which she was both the dominant songwriter and producer. And I think it says a lot about Betty Davis's artistry that even though the most famous thing about her is that she was once very briefly married to Miles Davis, that is also perhaps the least interesting thing about her. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cane And when I kick my legs, oh, I got real fun. To talk about Betty Davis, we're joined by Funketeer, Future Soul Trailblazer, ATL Reppin' Queen, singer Joy Elaine Gilliam, known to most simply as Joy. Her new album is Rebecca Holy Love Salvation Symphony. Get all the way into it. Yes. But here's a track from her 1994 debut, Pendulum Vibes. Each episode, we do a deep dive into an album joined by a special guest. And this week, it's singer, songwriter, and producer Joy. Hello. I have to say, I associate you so heavy with Atlanta that it took me just a few seconds to adjust to the reality. Like, oh, you live in Los Angeles now. I live in Los Angeles. I'm an Angelino. I feel like everyone's moving from L.A. to Atlanta to be part of the big creative scene there. So how come you went the other way? I think it's a little bit of... I think people are doing a little do-si-do with it, kind of, actually. (laughs) I have been in Atlanta for 20 years, Mm. and I literally felt like I had just done all I could do there. How has L.A. treated you so far? You've been here, what, like four or five years? Five years. Okay. L.A.'s treated me wonderfully. It is probably one of the better decisions I've made in Mm. my adult life. Mm. (laughs) I was moving out here. As someone who, as you just noted, has spent so much time in Atlanta building the scene there— and it's not as if the ATL suddenly has experienced some kind of overnight success. I mean, right. it's always been there, but its visibility has certainly taken a few steps up. Mm-hmm. What is it like to see? And, and how do you, do you think it's been a long time coming to, for Atlanta to be kind of embraced as being this cultural hotspot that it's being treated as now? It's kind of been on the rise with that whole kind of vibration for a while. 
Um, I specifically remember like when Freedom came out, Pendulum Vibe, and just those early 90s when you were not going to be played on the radio mm. if you were from Atlanta. Mm. Anywhere else really outside of Atlanta, unless mm. it was just a huge pop hit and they just didn't have a choice but to go ahead and play you. And I can just remember when that shift specifically started to change and I started, you know, as I'm traveling, I'm in L.A., I'm in New York, and I'm starting to just hear in people's cars stuff from Atlanta. So this yeah. was in like probably two. 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. when I noticed a huge shift. I remember hearing, um, I Ain't Never Scared, it was Bone Crusher, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Killer Mike. And yeah, for yeah. me, that particular record in terms of hip hop was kind of the it was the one that I noticed the most that sort of changed that trajectory. You know, all the other, you know, super badass groups that had come out of there, you know, there's some SOS and some Cameo and, you know, all these, you know, older groups that had still been killing. But people don't even necessarily associate that, yeah. <clears throat> associate those groups with Atlanta. Um, and, of course, Outkast had, had, had done in Andre's now super, you know, famous last words at the Source Awards, you know, it was. But it's like this, though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> The closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. And that was in 94. And from then, yeah, it's been here. So it took about probably five years after that initial statement, in particular with hip-hop, because hip-hop seems to be the, the particular piece of music that's shaping and pushing pop culture at this point. Rap music is pop music. But in, in terms of Atlanta and just that, how it is now, though, it's like, wow. Like, I can so remember when everybody wanted to, like, be from New York or right, be right. from L.A. Or, and now everybody's, like, Once, doing yeah. their best to do their best, you know, southern drawl and, you know, get with the, everybody wants to say shout in. Everybody wants to say, you know, um, which is actually really, really cool. Um, I like it, and I like the boldness, I think. Mm. I think the kids get a lot of flack, and everybody likes to talk about, you know, what's wrong. Mm-hmm with what they're doing, but I see something really free and strong and powerful and, and it's a great big, you know, middle finger to the establishment. Quite frankly, I think, you know, how they are are, are doing it. Right, right. And I personally love that. And I wouldn't want to see anybody silenced or have anybody, you know, uh, have their light dimmed, even if other people don't necessarily understand it or get it or don't understand the significance of it. I do. Mm-hmm. I get it. So I like it. I, I love it, actually. I love how Atlanta is like, for better or for worse, people are like, oh, my God, they focus too much on Real Housewives and the this and the that. And other is that, too? You right. know, it's right. not. It, it, it's, right. it's that, too. It's the Housewives. It's Young Thug. It's, you know, whoever these some sort of I'm thinking of people who sort of get a bad rap and everything gets kind of put on their shoulders about why things are wrong in this it's all of those things, yeah. you know, and I'm quite frank, I'm proud of the whole kid and caboodle from the top to the bottom. Well, I know a lot of us discovered you back, you know, when you were very deep in that Atlanta phase, especially Morgan, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I went to Clark. So, boom, uh, AU. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Okay. AUC, in effect. And I was there uh, in what I think, I mean, everyone's got their opinion, but, but uh, what I think were sort of the glory years um, of, of Atlanta, the music scene birthing out from 92 to 96. So at the time that Pendulum 
Vibe came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a sophomore at Clark, um, deeply, deeply in love. And yes. uh, Fatal Love Sick Journey was on constant rotation because it was sort of the soundtrack of, the, of, of that love affair. Yeah. I have to say I'm so happy that we're going to be we're talking about Betty Davis today because she's very near and dear to me as an artist. Uh, just to give some quick background on her, uh, Betty Davis was born Betty Mabry, began her career as a songwriter primarily uh, in the mid-1960s with a couple of pretty obscure singles. And then in 1968, she meets a jazz musician by the name of Miles Davis. <laughs> they have a crazy whirlwind courtship marriage that lasts all of a year. Uh, during which time Miles helps to produce a demo for her at Columbia Studios. But after their divorce, Betty struck out on her own, eventually leading to They Say I'm Different, which she recorded for Just Sunshine uh, Records in 74, as Morgan noted earlier. Uh, This was her second album, but it was the first album where Betty produced it herself Mm -hmm. and that she handpicked most of the musicians that she worked with. So to me, I always think of this as her true kind of coming out Mm -hmm. effort because it's really you get Betty and her full – full-fledged sort of uh, talents as a songwriter, as a singer, and as a producer here. Mm -hmm. Um, Joy, why did you choose this album? Um, I think that this album does a a really excellent job of showing sort of the totality of Betty as a a woman um, and an artist, as a, you know, completely liberated woman, sonically, um, the the subject matter that she chooses. And and it's just so damn funky. (laughs) Like, it's just so, so, so funky. But don't you glow on no tram. From the funkiness to the folklore to the, the ways that it's actually been uh, sprinkled in, in modern music culture without people even knowing. Hip hop heads will know that Shubi Doop and Cop him Ice Cube sampled that. For, what's the what's the song? What's the what's upon a time in the project? Yeah, what's upon a time in the project? Is that is that what it's called? Yeah. That is the title. Yeah, she's a fine, fine, fine. Lord knows she sure is fine. My brother came in, he's in the gang banging because he walked. And because she also talks about her roots mm-hmm. um, and her beginnings, um, which she's good for, actually, on, on a few of her parts. But I think this one just kind of pound for pound. I think there's a real 360 look right. into her as an artist and into her as a woman. We tend to think of now in, in hindsight that there were all these female Funketeers, and yes, certainly through Parliament, mm-hmm. and the Brides of Funkenstein, and obviously the women who worked with James Brown, like Lynn mm-hmm. Collins and Vicki Anderson, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But Betty, to me, when you really look at when and how she comes up, mm-hmm. she's not being fronted by someone else. Not she's at all. Not, she's, not the produ- she's not the creation of basically some kind of male talent. Right. She's very much her own, her own persona. Yes. And it's still that way, too. Like, I, I can't imagine the levels of. Good Lord, the levels of misogyny and just the intense, colossal bullshit that she probably had to uh, endure, you know, as a woman back then and and, and, and a good-looking woman. 
Right. You know, on top of that, like and, and a good looking black woman, and a good looking black woman, you know, with as the kids say these days, you know, with too much sauce, like too much, like just right. dripping in it, creative, doesn't care. And from what I understand, too, kind of a good girl underneath it all, like not a wild girl, not somebody out here. Uh, she's written songs about her friends who were like that, but she wasn't necessarily the one out there. She was trying to make some music. Yeah. Also, there's something to be said for that, too. It's like this persona of hers, you know, hella sex, drugs, and rock and roll just because it's so uh, back then. But from what I understand, that wasn't even her steez. So she didn't even have to, like, you know, put on or gas herself up even in that way. Like, all of that, you know, hot-ass femininity and, and, and beauty and sexiness was just already on her. She didn't even have to. She just had to put shit on wax. <laughs> Exactly. And she what I like about her is is the authenticity wasn't just lyrical. Okay, it was artistic. Yes. Because you can't talk about Betty Davis without talking about those album covers. And what she okay. gave, like Come fishnet. On. Come on. Okay, black pantyhose. Shout out to the time. Come on. Okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Shout out to the time. And how she kept it real and how difficult mm-hmm. that must have been, to your mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. to have control of her image mm-hmm. in 1974. Listen. That's something. That's something right there. I have to know, when did you first discover the album? Oh, this is great. I first discovered this. I was an adult when I discovered Betty Davis via a friend of mine in Atlanta. Well, before I even say that, she actually took it further and was able to give me like all of this super crazy cool history about Betty because she had actually seen Betty do some things in Europe and some things like back, back one of my older girlfriends. But Fishbone, they're the ones that turned me on to Betty. When we first started working together, so this was 93, 94, somewhere up in there, right after I came back, because I spent some time in London after Pendulum Vibe. I was over there licking my wounds, wondering why I didn't sell no records. (laughs) But when I came back, I met, I had a chance meeting with Angelo Moore, heard that he was going to be in Atlanta, met him. We became instant friends, hung out. He stayed in Atlanta for a while. I introduced him to Dallas, Austin, who was my producer also at the time. The guys were already familiar with me performance-wise and as a writer and stuff. And they just so happened to ask, have you ever heard of Betty Davis? And I was like... The actress? Right. Well, initially, right. Yeah, and I a was lot of like, people think that, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have. And they're like, no, 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 no. Not the actress. <laughs> Betty Davis, Betty Mavery Davis. And I was like, who is that? Mm. So they just looked and they looked at each other. They didn't even say nothing. They just went and pulled out a nice box of cassettes and they played her catalog for me. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that somebody had already been out here going hard like that as a woman, like that free that open, that raw, it blew my mind. So you heard it uh, in 1994, which is 
20 years after she uh, after she had made exactly they sound different what did it mean to you then and what does Betty Davis mean to you now then it meant the revelation that I'm not alone mm. it meant that ooh that makes me almost tear up <laughs> it's okay wow I don't even know <laughs> I didn't even expect that to happen um Wow. Okay. And so then what it means now, uh, kind of still the same thing. I cannot believe that that made me tear up like that. <laughs> and then I can't even get on the other side of it. Hold on. That's okay. Um, I think if, if I can just jump in, though, I think it really speaks to why she's so memorable. Because there are other artists who, on paper, you look at their their press photos. It's not like Betty invented a persona that was wholly unlike anything that you would have right. seen. Right. right. Absolutely. But when you listen to her, there's just something about it that is, you know, I don't, I hate to use the word authentic because in a lot of ways her performance was a persona. Like she was never as wild off stage as exactly. she was on she stage. She was not. But what she no. gave you with that, right. it just felt unlike anything else you could really compare it to in that moment. And right. that idea that I wasn't alone, I think really speaks to the kind of power of what she embodied in that sense. It's very true. I think when you talk freedom of sexuality and cre- <clears throat> and creativity together, women tend to, uh, you know, we, we, we continually catch the, the short end of the fucking unevolved stick on that. Um, and so for her back then, she, um, to just be so fearless in that, like it mm-hmm. still blows my mind, even today. So she let me know that I wasn't alone and today. She still lets me know that. And now that I've got more than 20 years under my belt, mm-hmm. you know, in this music industry, now I'm meeting young ladies who are in their, you know, early 20s who have just discovered my music. Yeah. And so for them, I've had, you know, some of them say to me, I didn't even know, you know, that this was. So she let me know that I wasn't alone and she gave me the courage to let some other young women know that they're mm-hmm. Not alone, too. So when I look in your eyes, your weary, troubled eyes, that part of you I see is me. Why can't you stop them from crying? We will be back in just a moment with more of our conversation with Joy about Betty Davis's They Say I'm Different after you hear from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. That's why I'm going to give you all the love I have. I listen to reading glasses because Bria and Mallory have great tips. My suggestion for book festivals is just go for one day. I listen for the author interviews. I was a huge Goosebumps fan. Oh, yes. <laughs> R.L. Stein was totally my jam. I don't even read. I just like their chemistry together. Literally, if on the bag it said, like, this book made me shit my pants, I'd be like, that's, I'm buying this book. Yeah. Like, like, I think the problem with blurbs a lot of times. I like that we both want to crap ourselves <laughs> over books. I'm Bria Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. We're Reading Glasses, and we solve all your bookish problems every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hello, are you looking for a new comedy podcast? In which case, can I draw your attention to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? It's a fictional industry podcast for the beef and dairy industries. 
It won Best Comedy at the 2017 British Podcast Awards, and it features wonderful guests such as Greg Davis. To my knowledge, it's the only cow circus that's ever existed in this country. In rural Russia, every small town has a cow circus. Josie Long. You should have a beef. Have a beef with them. I have a beef with you. I will have a beef with you. Come round my house and I'll have a beef with you. And Andy Daly. That virus never existed. There was never any such thing as a mad cow disease. That was all an illusion that uh, Big Lamb came up with. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would recommend starting at episode one. Bye. We are back on Heat Rocks talking with Joy about Betty Davis' smash album, They Say I'm Different. Song that you would uh, love to remix or song that you'd love to cover or your favorite song that you've covered of hers? From They Say I'm Different, I am going to have to eventually do that shooby doop and copy. I'm going to have to eventually do that one. I love it too much. I'm going to do it. Um, but if we're speaking, I know this is, you know, we're, we're, we're giving all the love to They Say I'm Different today. But my my I have covered, if I'm in luck, I just might get picked up. Mm. I do that. I did that on my second album, One Amoeba Cleansing Syndrome. And it's still a staple in my live show. What's the fire track from the album? That one fire, fire that you got to have on repeat or you got to have on super elevated decibels. Ooh, that's got to be that shooby doop and copy. I'm going to scooby shooby doop all night. Go on and love him, yeah. Go on and love him, yeah. I'm going to try to not till the sun rises and when the clock strikes 12. love with the drums on this and I'm in love with the call and response by Betty kind of making the statement you know how she has it set up how the song is set up the girls kind of you know coming through with the backgrounds kind of seconding you know seconding her on that little amen corner over there <laughs> um and I just love how she talking about the dude just I love how she's talking about him how he make her feel how he look what she gonna do to him it's like you know perfect Queen got his gangster braggadocio. Yeah. <laughs> if Shooby Dupin' Copham is the fire track, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. song off of here do you think best defines Betty's persona or sound? He was a big freak. When I was his princess. That's all persona. Man, that's a damn persona. Right there. <laughs> when I was a skateboarder, ooh, ooh, I got down on Huggins Hill. When I was a flower, I answer to the name of Rosemary. When I was his mistress, when I was his geisha, when I was his, like these examples of like the subservience and then to be like, but he was a big freak now. He liked to get beat with this turquoise chain. Don't think he didn't. You know, just 
again, the the jumping back and forth, like I'll hug his heels, I'll be his gate, like the whole subservient thing, but then mm-hmm. also that I am ruling your world. And if I choose to be subservient, that is still my choice. That's mm-hmm. still me ruling you. Even that is everything. It still sounds revolutionary, that it idea is. in 2017, you know, let alone 19, the early 1970s. Still, right now. And to be able to take, um, you know, ownership of your own sexuality you know he was a big freak but i was a freak as I well. i was a freak as well yeah me too because i i you know i loved I, him right. i hug his heels i cook his dinner child i'll do everything i'll beat him with that turquoise <laughs> chain i'll do whatever you want me to do yeah but still but still like a um this fit like i always envisioned it or look at it uh when i when i hear her music and even when i do my own no matter how much i'm talking about like hugging some heels or needing this or needing that it's always still very much though but this is my choice which i think is so important like th- that's the empowerment part like that part right there like that's the that's the cornerstone to me of what makes women who we are he was a big free We're talking about an album here today that's, you know, over 40 years old. What is it about that album, that moment, the artist, as we've been talking about, do you think that it's kept over the decades, really, that brings us back to want to talk about her? I think that uh, it is so rare to be able to cap. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's rare to even be able to come across people that live so bravely, you know, in their truth and who... Uh, are able to also have the courage to express it uh, and to put themselves out there so that others can partake of it as well. And I think that the because of the topics, because of the authenticity of the things that she was talking about, you know, the way that she presented, the 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 spirit of of what was captured. Uh, on these albums, it is still something. And because also, to, to be very specific, within the music industry, um, we get smothered by having to be product, and we don't get to um, really shine just in the art. And over the years, that continues to be, you know, even more of a problem. You mm-hmm. know, when you when you're talking about being a part of a machine, you know, if you have. It's real difficult these days to have any level of mainstream success and not have your, you know, your funk stepped on several times. The dope ain't good no more. It's too cut, you know. Um, And so Betty still represents that pure, uncut dope, like unstepped on, pure off the brick. (laughs) You know, like just 1970s, (laughs) pure... (laughs) Um, and that still resonates. And and I think even more so now, uh, uh, with I, I know many artists who pay tribute to her. There's a sister in uh, Detroit, Jessica Caremore, who's been doing a black women rock mm. uh, tribute, you know, which precedes black girls rock. She's been doing this for almost 15 years, mm. who created and started doing it because of her love for Betty and because she just wanted more people to know about her. And that's actually how she and I became friends. Mm-hmm. Um and I ended up doing a tribute with her uh, a couple, a few times over the years. Um, somebody who's brave enough to hold the banner up, you know, and not even on some, hey, look at me, but just on some, y'all, this is just how I got to do it. Yeah. Like, I got to do it like this. Yeah. I can't do it no other way. To have that come across, for real, 
That's why that still resonates, because that's a different kind of energy to capture on a record. It's not a team of people. It's not a glam squad. Mm. It's not a team of producers. It's not any of those things. You know, it's a woman that got some songs and some ideas, and she want to get them things out. You know, and it still just sits, you know, it sits heavy on you in a good way. It just just still... You know, it hits you like that when you hear it. So any new artist or anybody that end up coming across Betty, um, that considered themselves, you know, connoisseurs and, and considered themselves, you know, as evolvers in their craft. If they come across her, her magic is going to be infectious. Makes me think of how I was saying before that her stage presence and the way in which she expressed herself on the album was a persona. It is a performance. It was mm-hmm. something that she crafted out of her mind. Mm-hmm. But to your point, it wasn't something that a focus group came up with. It wasn't a bunch of marketers right. getting around saying, what would be the way to make a splash? She was you taking, can't do that. She was taking huge risks yes, she at, was. This, at this time. I can't mm-hmm. remember. It might have been in what city it was, but the I think the NAACP tried to get her show banned mm-hmm. out of a, a smaller city that because right. they just felt like she was just too much and was re- was it was a, it was a very respectability politics kind of move, but that she was basically a bad look for for black women of that era because of her embrace of sexuality and we and black women any particularly those of us who you know come from there's a particular stock or there's a particular uh, pedigree there's a particular. Uh, there's a thing with black folks and, you know, I don't care who's what ethnicity group thinks that they're conservative or more, you know, buttoned up than black folks. Black folks are the most conservative. Once we dig our heels in on mm. something and we are just not with that and that is not proper, that is not good. That is not it. Once we do that, we've done it. And she does come from that. And that's why it made so much sense to me why I had never heard of. Of course, I hadn't heard of her. Mm-hmm. Who? Ain't nobody going to let me listen to this. <laughs> you know, like, who's going to have this for me? Like, Millie can get through because there was also two, another uh, push. I guess, and, and Millie was a little bit older. There was just another, it was still, you know, heavy label. Right. It was just another thing yeah. with the Millie thing. Yeah. Right. It, that was just something else. But this Betty thing. And it was so, the, the rock aspect of it, yes. you know. And that really had a lot to do with, you know, somebody, some black woman with a lot of guitars screeching in the background. No. Some kind of black woman with some kind of lingerie on on stage and some fishnets and a kitten heel with some fuzzies on the front. No. That makes total and complete sense to me in the black community. The con- like the conservative vibe. When we're on it, we are on it. And, uh, and we, will, we will cast you out. We'll be like, no, we're not doing that. Um, and so the propriety, respectability, politics, it makes, that's why nobody heard of it. That's why I, I love it when people come into her, like young women, they usually don't come into her until they're like in their like 20s, like early 20s. And then when they come into her, they're just like, <laughs> what? You know. And I think, I think something that, that, that uh, gets lost is we spend so much time talking about, you know, her persona and the lyrics that we forget that those vocals and that delivery, Come that, on. that growl, mm-hmm. that, it's just so raw. So raw. And nobody, nobody sings like her. Mm-mm. You know, um, to your point about Millie, you know, Millie had that R&B. I she mean, still had a hell of a just straight up, she's a killer ass vocalist. Right. Millie Jackson is. Right. Killer vocalist. But, like, that, but that was soul and that was R&B. Exactly. And even still, like, You're right. if, if Millie Jackson came on at the house, we knew the kids had to go downstairs. Either Millie Jackson or Johnny Guitar Watson, <laughs> but y'all got to go downstairs, right? I always knew as soon as that first Millie Jackson <laughs> So I was like, we can't be up uh-uh, here. We can't no be up here. 
<laughs> so you sure weren't going to hear Betty Davis at, at the house? No. Um, but I think that Betty Davis uh, made us think a lot about, she had us asking questions about ourselves. Yes. That made us uncomfortable, yes. especially as black women. Yes. And to what degree are we willing to own our sexuality? Yes. Um, and that, mm-hmm. for me, is what makes her so timeless. Mm-hmm. Um, that she, we can still be asking those questions now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she is a lot of things, but a, but a trailblazer for sure. Yes. The undisputed. Undisputed. Uh, queen of funk to me. Me too. Period. <laughs> Joy, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I'm so glad the focus of our conversation was Betty Davis uh, today. If people want to check for you, let us know how we can find you. You can find me, um, you can go to my website, alljoyeverything.com. You can keep up with stuff there. I'm also on Instagram, Tennessee Slim Kitty. Um, And I'm also on Twitter under my government name, Joy Gilliam. (laughs) (laughs) And Facebook, too. I'm under my government name, Joy Gilliam. You can catch me on any of those platforms. Follow me. Come say hello. We all hungry for, uh, you know, for for more of that good, good that you bring. Thank you so much. Uh, It is on the way. Such beautiful, beautiful, good stuff happening out here in Los Angeles and and for the world. So I'm excited. Thank you for having me here, Morgan. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for coming through. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and Christian Duenas. Our booking manager is Shana Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And exec producer is Jesse Thorne. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Yo, before we get out of here, here's a teaser from our next Women Behaving Boldly episode, another encore where we move into the 1980s with music writer Ann Powers talking about Madonna's Like a Prayer. The thing about this record is very, this to me, and it's not like Madonna's my friend or anything. I mean, I have interviewed her once, but what I project upon her personality is a, a kind of intense orderliness, workaholism, mm. uh, you know, desire to keep everything in control. And that's the thing that's really interesting about Like a Prayer, because even though it is very confessional, it is has a concept album feel, and vocally she's taking a lot of chances on this album, there's a kind of orderliness to it. She mm. hits all these beats, right? She has a song about her mom, Promise to Try. She has a song about her dad. She has a song about her friends who've died of AIDS, Spanish Eyes. Uh, and then she has a song about her marriage, and it all sort of fits, like, checking off the boxes. And that doesn't yeah. make it any less sincere. In fact, it makes it more sincere, because that really seems to be how she is. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.